I'm Stephen Aaron Deinhardt IV. Welcome to the Giant Lands Podcast, hosted by Amusement Sparks, with your host, Andrew Spahn. Today on the Giant Lands podcast, our guest is Larry Elmore. He is an American fantasy artist, well-known for his work on Dungeons & Dragons, but he's worked on tons of really cool other stuff over the years. Um, I definitely recommend just Googling his name or or, um, his name and then art and look at the stuff he's done. It's really cool, and we're lucky enough that he is working on Giant Lands as well. Trigger warnings for this episode include war, throwing stuff at people, getting stitches, uh, fantasy attempted murder, and having enough rope to hang yourself. There's a lot of things we kind of casually say in conversation in America that uh, if you objectively look at it, it's kind of intense. (laughs) So nothing against Larry, of course. These are all phrases that a lot of people use, but uh, yeah, just watch out for that. Please follow Giant Lands on social media, on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter as Giant Lands. So this uh, conversation, we just kind of naturally started up before uh, we did any kind of formal introduction. So we're going to join in media res, as they say. But I hope you enjoy the conversation. I'll probably go in the living room, sit down and read a while before we're bed. Oh, that's great. I'm glad to hear that, that you're still, uh, you know, still under reading. I mean, not that yeah. <laughs> there's an age limit or anything like that. But well, I know what you're saying. I know what you're saying. It can be a, a thing that I feel like a lot of people grow out of. Yeah, some people weird. did. Yeah, I sort of grew into it. That's um, cool. I, I didn't. I didn't get to read much. Well, if you're painting, yeah, ears, and that's before they had all this stuff now, audio and everything. So you couldn't read. You had to paint. Okay. Hmm. And uh, so I couldn't read much. And so finally, um, when I started getting uh, more technology and stuff, and and with the, like uh, Netflix and things, I think I've listened to every documentary they've had. <laughs> you know, I know about every UFO thing, that ever, <laughs> ever ever flight to Mars or would be flights, and and the future of everything. So, I've, but I've I've listened. So you can't watch anything and and paint, but you can listen. Yeah. And then my wife has always been a big reader, and um, so about I guess I've been reading now oh. for about ten years. And uh, finally, I started, uh, well, I would read, but I'd have to go to conventions and have to fly. Mm-hmm. Like the California. So I'd just stop in a bookstore at the airport and pick out a, a bestseller or something and just read it in a flight. I'm bringing it home, and last time my wife started reading, she started reading series of, of, of books. And uh, she would recommend, I read more adventure kind of stuff, you know, and uh, she sort of knew, she got into like good detective movie uh, uh, books mm-hmm. and uh, got me onto those. I read a whole bunch of those and I started just reading it. You know, just different books are good books. And uh, I really enjoy it. Uh, and it keeps me from staying in there and painting some more. <laughs> because, uh, I'm getting older. I can't marathon like I used to. Used to, I would, I would start out usually about nine in the morning. I'm not a morning person. And um, and I would paint till about bedtime on the average. Wow. was two o'clock in the morning. What? Holy cow. I thought you were going to say paint till bedtime at 10 p.m. I 
painted from about uh, about nine o'clock in the morning, nine thirty, to about two to three in the morning. Some will usually about two thirty because three seemed really late, and two come too quickly. And I was like, <laughs> thirty, oh man, I better go to sleep. And I uh, didn't have the time; you couldn't go to sleep because your brain was still, you know, right. Oh yeah. Later, like, oh God, I only have three hours. Well. <laughs> Well, I lost a lot of sleep. Art does take a lot of time. It's a, it's kind of an undervalued thing. Yeah, look at me. I'm only 38 years old. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I do. No sleep, too much coffee and cigar- cigarettes. I used to chain smoke. Well, I burnt packs out in my ashtray. I'd get like when I'm get a few puffs, get the paint and look around. It ashes that long on it. I'm like, oh, I'll just light another one up. <laughs> I smoked and drunk black coffee. Wow. That killed me yet. I'm sure that when you're painting, it's like your brain is in the world of the painting in a way. Like part of your brain is still um, remembering kind of your your artistic fundamentals and your personal yeah. style and things like that. But I'm sure I'm sure it's really immersive too, right? Yeah. Oh yeah, because there's certain parts of painting. Like I said, I listen to documentaries. Mm-hmm. You can listen to documentaries and still paint certain areas. Like uh, you got a sky here with a few clouds. Like, ah, yeah, you, <laughs> you can listen to everything. Start putting some background trees in. But then you start getting on the hard stuff, and all of a sudden you realize the documentary's already gone off. It's just sitting there with a blank screen for the last two hours, and you don't realize, like, oh, well, okay, so you go find something else, or you run it backwards where you left off. And um, but yeah, once you once you slide into it, then time stands still. There's no concept of anything. You're just doing. Wow. And uh, my wife, uh, uh, she's retired now, so she she runs. My website and does all the shipping and, and printing and everything. Wow. She'll, I'll be in your painting and she'll bring me a sandwich. Here's lunch. Here's lunch. Look at me. Here's lunch. Okay, okay. Lunch. Okay. It seems like about an hour later, she'll be saying, it's time to eat supper. I'm a southerner. We call it supper. <laughs> time to eat supper. I'm like, I look around, my sandwich is still sitting there, like, oh, my God. <laughs> I thought it was like an hour later. It's, it's like four and a half hours later. You know? Wow. What an interesting profession. Like, Because it's not only a passion, but it's a profession. But it's not like a regular day job where you just clock in and no. clock out at all. Yeah, nobody bothers you. Really, if you're left alone, you get in the zone, and you can get a lot done. But if people uh, during the day... You know, it takes you about at least 30 minutes if you're not bothered. You come in and sit down, you look at the painting, and you see where you left off, see where you got started, and you start getting the colors mixed up. And before you know it, somewhere in there, and within 30 to 40 minutes, you are in it. You're just in it. So time's gone. Everything's gone. And um, if somebody comes to my door, and I don't care why it's like you have to talk for five minutes. You lost an hour because you got to sit back down and get back where you was at mentally, what you was doing. And and because when you're in the zone, you paint, uh, you get a lot done. Oh yeah. But you got to start every time you start. That's slow. That's wasting time. It's slow time. And so so when you get four or five interruptions a day, you you've lost a total of almost four hours. Uh, if you was left alone, you could have got that much more accomplished. And uh, so, but uh, I've learned now, I'm older, I'm old, <laughs> and uh, uh, 
Well, I don't think I'm old till I, I remember how old I am. I'm like, oh, crap. I always thought I'd be dead by then. <laughs> I mean, it's just a number. Obviously, your your spirit and your energy are. I know. Oh, I feel, I feel great. And I do things, you know. I mean, this last year, or this year, I was at four-wheeling with these old-time four-wheelers. These are racing types. It's hmm. been in my races. And we was climbing mountains about these things and stuff. And, and, I, and all day long, and I, I swear, I was, I was about dead at the end, but I had a blast. And I didn't wreck once. Wow. It's good, because usually you're doing that. But I used to ride a lot of trail bikes for years. Real hard trails. So so riding with four wheels is easier than two wheels. <laughs> my friend thought, ah, he'll be wrecking 15, 20 times. But I've ridden motorcycles my whole life. Without, and uh when your age kicks in is when you wake up the next morning and you can't get out of bed. Mm-hmm. It's a story. <laughs> oh, I have a 40 or 35 year old brain, but I got a 70 year old body. You know? <laughs> You've got this, uh, yeah, youthful spirit where you want to go out and, and do these things oh, yeah. and push your body to the limits and get lost yeah. and immersed in things. And oh, I've got a, a car right now, a 34 Ford coupe. Wow. It's, it's sort of like, the, it looks a bit like the car, the little yellow coupe from America, the three, except it's about five times faster and smaller. Wow. <laughs> it's it's souped up. Oh, it's, it's around 660 horsepower. <laughs> your average car has got about 200 horsepower. Right. <laughs> it can run a quarter mile in about nine seconds. And, uh, and that's how fast can you change the gears. That sounds like trouble. <laughs> it is. It's scary. Yeah. yeah. Okay, when we first got it built, a friend of mine built it, he's super mechanic. And um, the first time I drove with them, it was like Star Wars. I mean, mm. you, you got the middle road, you get around the yellow line, and then you hope no cops are in there listening. Right. <laughs> <laughs> the statute of limitations has passed. <laughs> you nail it and just, just go through the gears, and it, you get that the landscape is stuck to blur. Wow. Holy cow, first one I've that before. I've ridden a lot of fast cars, a lot of powerful cars, but not, and driven a lot, but not one. The one I got now, like just the same one, and then we, you couldn't hold it in the road and take it off. Hmm. It would spin so bad, you go from, you're going to end up in a ditch. It's, it did it so fast, you couldn't catch it, you couldn't control it. And so I, they got built, I said, I want you to, to fix this so I can hold it in the road and take off decently. So what I did was end up putting this big set of cheater slicks on. Cheater slicks are slick tires, but they're if the tire has no tread, it's illegal to run on the highway. Mm-hmm. Cheater slick is a big tire with hardly any tread at all. About every three or four inches is a little tread. <laughs> about six or seven years little piece of tread. <laughs> but what it does, you can't drive it in the rain, I tell you that. Wow. But 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 it sticks. So now you hit it, it's pure acceleration. The front wheels don't leave the ground. They almost do, but the whole body torques. And 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 you go into second gear at probably, you go from first to second within a matter of five seconds. Less than that. <laughs> uh, about three seconds. Mm-hmm. And you've done about 50 when you hit second. By the time you hit third, you're around 80-something. Then you go to, well, 85. You hit fourth. And, 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 and you hold it there about a second and a half and you're about, a, you're doing about 120 by then. And, uh, and then you let off of it. 
It still got a fifth gear, but you don't need. <laughs> There's a theoretical. It could go faster. The, the fifth gear is just for driving on that interstate. You know, when you got to go to 100 miles away, you you get on and put the fifth gear. It's mm-hmm. a higher gear. You don't use much gas. It's mm-hmm. not hard on the car. Right. But no, I don't know how fast it run, but it's not really aerodynamic. So I had one like it before, blue one. And when I got up around 130, 140 miles an hour, I'd go through the gears. And, and you're just on like a, about a quarter mile stretch of road. And, uh, and you keep holding it down until you're starting that road for about a quarter mile. And you're getting up about 130. But the thing would get so light because it's not aerodynamic. Yeah. And, and you can feel it almost like when you leave the road and, <sighs> and you're stirring it like this, just quick little cuts. And, uh, you get such a adrenaline rush. And you also run out of road. There's a curve coming up. So you let off of it, and then everything sort of flows to you, the adrenaline and everything. Wow. It's like, whoa. And then I was talking to somebody. said, you know, it only takes 130 miles an hour to get an airplane off the ground. <laughs> <laughs> You're dang near there, huh? With that car belt like that, that's not aerodynamic. I mean, it's cool looking and everything, but he said, you know, they, they can leave the ground. And I've seen drag racers leave the ground. I mean, just go so fast, the wind catch them, but it's built. Not enough aerodynamic, not enough downforce. Right. Reason. Get lifted off. And I don't want to ever do that. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, that'd be a pretty terrifying thing. Sometimes it's frustrating when, when you get brought back down to first gear, whether you're painting or, or racing, right? But it, it does keep you safe, I guess, and yeah. keeps food in your belly and keeps your wheels on the ground. I've always liked uh, adrenaline rush. Mm. Uh, kid, and, uh, and I've had motorcycles most of my life. Harley. I still got a big old Harley, but the last... I haven't driven it for two years. Last time I drove it, I nearly got run over twice. By one was a woman on the wrong side of the road on a curve, and mm-hmm. I almost had to go a great big down the hall. And um, and the other time it was, I think there was somebody on drugs the way they drive. I made wow. another curve, and they were oh, oh, oh. I, I just went on parking. It's just getting too crazy to drive anymore. Driving is that? Is it, I don't know. It is getting crazier out there. I do. I felt that on my way home today, there were two different instances where it's like that person's pay, is paying so little attention that if they met anyone else at their same level, they would for sure crash. It's lucky that everyone else is just swerving around them all day. I got a friend that got rear-ended out only country road, a two-lane road. He was driving. He was going to turn on the side of the road. He put a signal on and everything. Slowed down, stopped. Some woman hit him in the rear end. Of course, she had slid a while she'd hit her brakes at least wow it knocked his him his bike way down the road luckily it didn't hurt him too bad and she ended up running off the field and but she was on her phone and she was on her phone and when she looked up she realized there was a motorcycle up there and she popped up too late man still got him so it's like it's just getting too dangerous too much i mean well if i was 35 45 years old even maybe 50 i would still be doing it mm-hmm. 72, I don't heal like I used to. Right. I get it messed up pretty bad. I might stay messed up. <laughs> yeah, and you want to yeah, you want to be comfortable. I still want to paint. I want to use this arm, you know. Right. Right. Take that one. That's all right, but not this one. <laughs> I saw somewhere online that you at one point did maybe just some uh, some work for Tonka. And I was so curious about what that would look like. I've seen some of your paintings that have motorcycles in them and other vehicles, but I was like I wonder what you did for Tonka. Would you mind telling us about that? It's kind of a random question. 
I think actually what it was. When you think of Tonka, you think of big metal truck. Yeah. Right? Okay. I think of that time Tonka, Tonka started in the toy market. And they got the contract to do the toy packaging for Willow, the movie. Oh, cool. Characters and stuff. Yeah. So um, I sent my samples into Lucasville. And um, and they approved me to do the packaging for that. So I did the toy packaging for that. And then also, Lucasfilm had me do all the character stuff in ink, pen and ink. And they used that as a licensing package. You just want to do anything of of that property in pen and ink. It had to be the of the quality of what I did. That's great. Uh, that was really neat. Yeah. And then I got invited to go out to Industrial Arts and Magic. And just so happened that week, I was <laughs> I was working at TSR full time. Mm-hmm. I was home freelancing full time. I had a deadline at TSR. I had a deadline for Bain Books, for you know, paperback books. And I also um, had been doing work with Thundercats packaging. And uh, and so all that was that week. And they called me up one to fly me out to California and tour industrialized and magic. Let's see, yeah, that was that week. Oh, then Tonka called the same day when they wanted to do it. I already was snowed under. I couldn't. I couldn't go to California. And then Tonka calls me on Friday and says, we want you to do a poster for us for um, for Thundercats. All the characters from one big thing. I said, I don't have time. I can't do it. He said, no, we really want you to do it because I've been doing the packaging and stuff. A lot of it. And I said, I can't do it. And, uh, and they said, no. it was a $6,000 job. And this was back in 80, I don't know, mid, uh, 87 maybe, 86, 87, somewhere around there. And uh, I said, I can't do it. And $6,000 was a lot of money back then. And um, and I said, I can't do it. Do you understand? I, I, am, I work full time for Dungeons and Dragons. I've got a book cover to do and I had something else to do. I forgot what. And, I, and then, and then, do you want me to do this? Said, well, when's your deadline? They said, it's Monday. You have to be shipped by Monday. I said, so, you want to do it starting tonight and, and be able to ship it by Monday. Yeah. I said, I can't do it. It's impossible. They said, okay, $8,000. I said, oh, it's, imp- I can't do it. They said, $9,000. And they got it to $12,000. And that, today's time, that'd be like offering me $25,000 for a weekend job. Or something, right. Okay. Right. And, uh, but I couldn't, uh, the clients I was working with, well, TSR, I couldn't just, I wasn't going to take two days off. I was working on, working with TSR is almost like freelancing. You'd have deadlines on certain products. You had to get it done no matter what. Mm-hmm. After it's done, you might take a day or two off and sleep if you want to and take a day off. Mm-hmm. But you had to work, take it home with your work or stay at work and work 10 at night and to get it done. So I had that kind of stuff at work. I had a freelance job at home, and uh, I was getting regular work from from Bain Books, paper, doing paperbacks, and I didn't want to screw him, and because he was consistent. Thundercats, I'd been working for him for about uh, three or four months, off and on doing things, and they kept coming back to me. And I guess I knew that though they'd be doing something else sometimes, and it's just a product. And so, but I still told him no, I couldn't do it. I, said, I can't do it. I'd like to, but I cannot stay awake and work. Two days, twenty-four hours a day, and they never sent me another job. 
Wow. But uh, I just had one. I was just like, they didn't care if you died as long as it got there. <laughs> they didn't give a crap, you know. If you had a heart attack and died, like, well, well I'm, something happened to me like that. Where I called. And they said, well, you still going to be able to work? I'm like, yeah, I think so. I was in the hospital about something. And I called it. Jeez. And they always worried about getting the job done. They didn't care if I died. Mm -hmm. They still want you, but they don't really care about you. <laughs> if you didn't go down the path of the painter, is there another path you would have wanted to pursue as far as a different career or creative endeavor? I'd probably end up some form of arts somehow. Mm -hmm. you know, I just like that whole, I like art and, and the arts. I like good acting. I like writing. I I would have liked to, uh, I can tell good stories. I can come up with stories. Uh, my cousin, I did write a book one time and it done real well. But, um, I, I'm not a, I'm not a English lit guy to where I can get all the structure right out the editor a lot. But what writing I do do and get an editor, they like, you're, you're a really good writer. I'm like, well, I would have liked it because I can, if you want me to make you up a good story by tomorrow morning, I can make you up a good story. Mm -hmm. I think that would be the next direction I would have liked to go in. But now, it's way too late. Uh, it's not too late, but I like painting and drawing more than, I like telling yeah. stories now. I'll tell mm -hmm. you stories tomorrow. Yeah. Get down and write one. It, you know, you, you got to do, and I'd have to have a good editor to work with. Of course. No, that's awesome. I mean, it takes a lot of the same skills, that, that creativity and, and world building that goes into writing is a lot of the same stuff that comes through through your, your visual media work, um, which is pretty obvious. You know, sometimes you can see a painter who is kind of, it doesn't seem like they're not creating their own ideas, more just like drawing scenes from movies and things like that. And there's nothing wrong with being like just a kind of a technical wizard where you can just execute but creating and pathfinding and deciding what you want to do is also that's really cool. Now, I'm not bad now than com computer art, okay? If I was an illustrator today trying to break into computer art, I'd be into it this deep. Because that's the, it's, it's the way to go. I, I hate to say it, but it is the way to go. But, but there are only very few computer artists I've seen where I, I can tell what the artist is. Ninety percent of the rest of the computer-generated art, you don't know who did it looks the same. It's very clean, nice art, and it's and it's, and it's bigger than life. Uh, I don't know. It's, it likes, it lacks that personal touch. There's no fingerprint to it. Uh, when you paint something by hand, it's got your fingerprint in it. You know what I'm saying? It's yours. Uh, and that's what all artists try to do, the whole through the history of art. I'll do my art, and I hope my fingerprint, my style, catches on, or way I approach it, my subject knowledge, that other people will like, and I can make a living doing it. Right, and that's how you become a legend, like yourself, is people recognize your early work, and they can tell this is also a Larry Elmore piece. Like a Rembrandt or a Da Vinci, you see it, you know, who did it? You know, it's like, oh, you know. And, and, and at that time, all the painting was sort of like that. They aspired to be like that, but you should tell some people over others at a glance. Uh, all the way up before computers were made, you could do that. And now, with, with that, uh, it, it, it's a common denominator tool. It takes a lot of artists and breaks them down to a common denominator, if you know what I'm saying. 
it's almost it like teaches them how to be a cog that fits into a machine more conveniently like it's good on your resume because you know you can work for kind of like you're talking about where you might have done the original line work for for the willow stuff or um where they kind of are like okay everyone else going forward has to fit into this style it it trains people to fit into a style in a way but not to innovate their own style and, and i know and i don't want to get an argument with computer artists because you got to make a living i understand mm-hmm. that and uh, and i had the choice it came to me about 19 i mean about 18 <laughs> you were alive back then <laughs> 2018, no, about, about, no, about 2009 or 10, mm. I had to make the choice of, of going to computer art to get any work or, or not. Because, uh, if it wasn't a computer, they didn't want to fool with a painting being shipped in and they got to get it separated and all that stuff and ship it back to you. It was more expensive, and they were liable while they had the painting and everything. Mm-hmm. So, you argue, you've seen it in, you know, yeah. there it is. And um, color separation is nothing, you know, compared to original has to be shot, and, or well, they have to scan it and all this stuff. But anyway, um, so I knew when I made that decision, I wouldn't get much work. But I wanted to paint by hand. I wanted to draw with a pencil, I want to paint with a brush. And, um, that's the challenge to me. That's the fun of it. I, and I say now, I just try to compete with dead men. I, you know, <laughs> painted before me, and I know I won't be as good as they were, but at least I can aspire to that. They used a brush, right? And they paint. They didn't. They didn't have a blend tool and everything else, you know. Um, so, or scanning a photograph and just doctor it up and keep on going. Um, but anyway. Uh, I did lose a lot of work for two or three years, mm. and uh, but I kept painting by hand. That's why I loved it. Because in my mind, I told my wife back then she was sweating bullets. She said, "We're going to go broke. We have to sell a house. We're just not getting enough work." So I started going to a lot of conventions selling prints. And mm. I tried this for about three years, and um, but anyway, I said I'm not going to do it. I said, "Here's what my gut feeling." D and D lasted longer than I thought it would. I thought it was going to be, you know, about 15 years, it's gone. 10 years, like all other things. Right. But it didn't. And I'm glad. I mean, I was hoping it wouldn't, but I thought that's how it goes in life. But when I saw it, didn't. And here it was, the year 2000. Um, and it's still growing. Like, crap. Okay. <laughs> all right. I'm going to keep paying reason because there will be collectors in this group. Because now, and I look back and said, a lot of these kids that were playing D&D, they were the generation after me. Okay, I'm old. But I got into fantasy and, and science fiction, second art. Well, there wasn't any fantasy art hardly there, but I was trying to do fantasy type art when I saw Frazetta's first cover in 1967. Mm. I was about 19 years old. Cool. And that blew my socks off. I said, that's what I'm trying, that's what I've been looking for. Mm-hmm. I didn't know what it was. I was doing this and that kind of adventures and excitement and then sort of fantasy, but but I didn't, but when he saw that, he opened the door like, you can do anything. I went, uh, yeah. <laughs> and so then, uh, uh, so, so now we're going back to, to 2000, 
you know, 12, 10, and I said, I'm going to keep paying because I think a lot of these young kids that was playing D&D back in the 80s have grown up to be doctors, lawyers, engineers, scientists. A lot of them are millionaires, and a lot of them are already starting to collect art. I know they called me, and I was selling paintings cheap, and, uh, well, to me, back then, I get $3,000, $4,000 rent off big original painting. I'm like, oh, man, happy days. I miss. And, uh, and now, uh, um, my son-in-law and maybe my son or something was online the other day watching two of my paintings sell online in an auction at Sotheby's. Auction wow. Ago. And I think they both went to over, both sold for over 40000 I thought, that's just great. I probably sold them for 2000 <laughs> That was a good investment. <laughs> I got screwed really well. But yeah. that time I hadn't thought about there would be collectors, mm -hmm. you know, back then. Right. But I told my wife, I said, there's going to be collectors. And I think there will be collectors. I wouldn't think about how much money they'll pay. i just say a collector doesn't want a print on his wall. He doesn't want a digital print on his wall. Mm -hmm. He wants a real-life oil paint, and they last for hundreds of years. Right. And it's got your fingerprints on it, literally. Yeah. You know, it's, it's it's got my DNA in it. I'm I tell you that. I've got beard hair stuck here and there. Skin <laughs> flicks and fingerprints in it and everything else. So Wow. Uh, Little uh sprinkles on top of the cake there. That's amazing. I just paint on it, paint over it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, oh look what's that little hair down there? It's gotta get out. Oh man, that was in the first layer, I think. Dig a hole to get that out. <laughs> like a beard hair. I just leave it in. I put a bunch of grass by it. Keep on going. <laughs> I think the value is in that original piece. There's only one original right. in the world. Exactly. And, uh, I know I took uh, paintings last year, not this year, COVID. But last year, Dragon Con, Gen Con and Dragon Con, I took an original painting, one of the old Dragon magazine covers. And they're good sized paintings. And I thought, I want to see, I want this young, younger generation to see that those magazine covers weren't little paintings like this. Or they weren't paintings the size of a magazine. And they wasn't done digitally. They were hand painted this big. And a lot of people were blown away. They couldn't believe that was a real thing. You painted that with a brush? Yeah. And, uh, and, uh, and both, the same thing happened. Dragon Con too, especially that that nineteen twenty year old group there. What they're like, uh, they look at my prints and they say, "You know, what program do you use to paint with?" Uh, this <laughs> brush my hand. You mean that hand painted? Like, yeah. You don't use Photoshop? No. And it's like, well, that's impossible. It's just that's what they're growing up with. They don't know that yet. If you can, I've seen a lot of the original masterpieces. I've been fortunate enough to travel. You know, people have made conventions in Italy. I'm like, sure, I'll go. I get to see that. <laughs> and uh, France, yeah, I go. I get to go to the Louvre, you know. But you see these masterpieces, and it's like, oh, if I lived 150 years, I'll never match what they did. And they had to grind their own paint and make their own brushes lots of times, you mm -hmm. know. And it's like, it's unbelievable what a human can do. It absolutely is. And I think a lot of those kids are thinking, like, I think for, for young people, right, you're like, that's impossible. No one could ever do that. Yeah. And the things from the past are so mysterious because it's like, no one could ever do that.
and you talk to uh, the average kid is maybe not a, a senior in college. Um, they don't have a clue about history. They really don't. Nothing about history. And I love history. Um, I love ancient history. And then, of course, like my dad was in the World War II. Uh, my uncle was in the Korean War. My grandfather was in World War One. I. I was drafted to cover Vietnam. I didn't go to Vietnam, but that was my war. It's it's interesting because I, I feel like when I was young, history was such a fascinating source of even like entertainment and imagination. But I think that we're so spoiled for entertainment these days that your imagination goes into the worlds, these fictional worlds instead of these historical worlds. I don't know. There's just so much content now. I get into a lot of detail. Mm-hmm. Um, um, when I was young, after, right after World War II, my dad got tuberculosis from the war. Was, actually, he went to a hospital to die, basically, the day my mom took me back from the hospital after I was born. That was 1948. But anyway, um, in the next few years, um, we uh, we lived out in the country in a little old house, didn't have running water electricity, mainly because they hadn't run the electric lines out in the country yet, mm-hmm. you know, around here. I live in Kentucky, and but most of in other states, about 1955 is when the people lived out in the rural areas finally got electricity. Unless you live close to a general store out in the country, then you got it too. But um didn't have electricity, and I didn't have running water. Uh, you had to get water out of a well. And um, so we would go visit somebody. And back then, people visited a lot. They'd go at night. And if it's wintertime, I time, done more visits in wintertime because he wasn't working so hard in the field. So you'd go visit, and you go in the living room of a house, these old-time houses. This is, this is, I'm talking about 1952 in the rural area. And um, they had a coal stove in the living room. And a coal stove, if you don't know what it was, it's about this big around, and it stands about that, that tall. It's got a pipe runs up, and the elbow, and it runs into the wall into the flue. And so there's that space behind the stove of about a yard, uh, maybe a little bit more than a yard. And the men at night would sort of gather around the coal stove and talk. And I'm smoking, and some old men be chewing tobacco and have his can sitting there, you know. And um, they'd keep the fire going. They'd watch the fire. You didn't want to get too low. And the women were sort of sitting off away, sort of in little chairs, talking to each other. Some of them sewing and talking. Look like something you see on a Western TV show, but that's how live back then. Right, right. The time periods were so similar, honestly, for like a hundred years. It's wild. Well, yeah. And so I'd sit in down behind the stove, and I was between the stove and the wall, and I'd listen to the men talk. And most of the men, if they was around my father's age, some of them were father's some of them was much older, like great uncles. But you got to realize when I was born uh, in 1948, anybody over 50 years old was. I was born in the, you know, 1800s. Mm-hmm. And so funny. some of the old people that was telling stories were born and grew up in the 1800s or, or late 1800s and the turn of the century. And they lived in the country a whole lot. So they they were just like what you see. Oh, documentaries how people used to live. They lived that way. <laughs> but they was sitting on the stove and, and I, I was there and I and, and most of the younger men, like my dad's age, they'd be talking, telling war stories, World War II stories. And they sort of told, talking enough about those. I would sit behind the sofa and say, uh, can, 
Can one of you tell me a story? Like when he was a kid, something scary, a scary story. And back then, kids were seen and not heard. You didn't interrupt the adult. But I would find a lull, I would say that real quick. <laughs> and most of the time, they'd ignore me for a while. And then I'd find another lull, I'd say it again. Can anybody tell me a story of a, when he was a kid, something scary happened? Finally, one of the old men said, well, back when I was a boy, about your age or something like that, he started on a story. And I love these scary stuff. And people believe that the devil could jump out and grab you right there in the woods. You know, I mean, yeah. it was a promise. You know, you believe in spirits. You believe in haints and ghosts and things. And um, and I love those stories. They, they were just scarier than I got that. Boy, I like them. And they'd tell them for the truth. And, well, they were true stories, at least for them. And um, for what they perceived it to be. Mm-hmm. And I love that. And that sparked my imagination, you know. And I would try to draw some monsters sometimes. And, uh, but yeah, I love those, that time period. It's gone. It's gone forever. But it was a really neat time. People visited and talked and shared and, and they worked in the fields together. They helped each other out. Uh, it was a good time. For the church mouse, but I love, <laughs> I love my childhood. And, and, we didn't act poor. You done the best you could, you know. And and because uh, me and mom lived, we would, you know, dad would come home to the hospital. He would say, "He's good enough to come home. He might get over it." It'd be about six months. He have to go back in again. So he'd be gone for a year, sometimes at a time. So up until I was about 10, 11 years old, he was in our hospital. So my all that time, he would get back sometimes just get a job and get about two paychecks and pfft, like he'd go. And so we got a little pension from the army because that tuberculosis was military related of like $65 a month. And that's what we lived off of. Wow. Know? But we done the best we could. Everybody was happy, get together and sing and make music and tell stories. And you still have nostalgia for that. Nobody had a television. I mean, you know, they didn't have radio. Oh, I bet. I mean, talk about, can you tell me a story? No kid, go away. You know, the the radio doesn't care who you are. They're going to tell you that scary story regardless. Oh, that's great. And they, there's a lot of old things. They used to do old tricks. They'd play on kids that would scare kids. Um, I mean, they, like, really scare you. Like, the kids, like, you get about 11, 12 years old, going to go camp out in the woods. So you would... Uh, you didn't have a tent. You'd have to get an old tarpaulin someplace. Every farm had a big old tarpaulin, weigh a ton. Fold it up and you drag that thing down the woods and you had a BB gun. You'd take that with you. You know, to hunt bear if you had a great imagination. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we knew a no bear, but we still scared. We was young enough to be scared of the deep woods and you're going way down the woods, not a park or nothing. It's down in the big woods and, uh, set your tent up and everything and then, Lots of times the fathers would get together and about midnight or one, they would come down and scare the little crap out of it. <laughs> and you didn't know it was, you'd think it's them, you're just hoping it's them, and they'd never let you know it's them. Oh my be, gosh. They'd be like, oh, you hear that? The guy got me, we're going to start shooting just in some general direction. You know? <laughs> or they far enough away, it wasn't going to hit them. Right. Wasn't even going to hit them. And scare you to death, you know, and, but. You come back and tell your story, you know. Oh, that's amazing. I mean, and that's the, I think, part of the appeal of, of role-playing games is that yeah. you get to feel scared and you get to feel like you're not a safe, cozy, yeah. indoor person. You know, you're an outdoor person on an adventure. 
and it's a kind of a thing you get to experience in childhood, but I feel like a lot of people grow out of that. I mean, they got more responsibilities. They don't have time to go play BB guns and camp out in the woods anymore, but you we can get, make it we, a priority. We oh, we all had to work. Mm-hmm. But the chores done. And that's why we did a lot of stuff at night. Because, you know, if you didn't go to bed early, if you, you had to get up at the same time no matter what. So mm-hmm. on you if you, you know, stayed up real late. So we played the woods a lot at night. But then if, if the chores were done, and especially all the boys who lived on a farm, I, we just lived in a house, whereas uh, everybody else was on farms. But certain times of the year, like the crops were in, or you didn't have to work for the crops, you'd have a little more time to play. And uh, I know we'd get together. There was a group of us uh, right there in a, within a, a mile or so area that uh, there was probably about six of us that we ran around together. we get down the woods, Sometimes it'd be seven or eight, and I had a couple of cousins that might come over. And we'd divide up two teams. And we're going to have war, and what it is, you can throw sticks. Anything made of wood, you can throw it at each other. <laughs> but nothing else, only sticks. So it starts out, you, you just run through the wood, grab a piece of broken limb, and you throw it. And then pretty soon you you find a really good stick about that big around, about that long, and it's like got some weight to it, and you throw that. And usually those things would go on for hours or so till somebody got hurt. You know, mm-hmm. Blood, you know, got one right in the head and bleeding like a stuck hog, you know, like, oh God. And you can't go to the hospital. You can't even tell your parents. Mm-hmm. So then you're going to get a whipping and then you have to go to the hospital and get stitches. And we thought, nobody ever had stitches. We thought, it'd be like mom sewing. They're just going to get a needle and thread to sew you up. I'm not going to lay there and let somebody do that. That was the most horrible concept. You know, hit me with a stick 50 times and make me bleed, but don't sew anything up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, so we would do that. We would use corn cobs, get big corn cob fights, because there's always corn cobs around old barns. Oh, because yeah. Eat corn. And when a corn cob lays in the mud for a year or so, <laughs> it weighs about two pounds, three pounds. <laughs> and it's like throw a rock almost. And so you can throw corn cobs, any corn cob you find. I don't care. <laughs> Three pound corn cob or a fresh one, it's real light. And we'd do that and have wars running and fighting, throwing it as hard as we could. We tried to kill other guys. And it always ends when somebody get one of these three pound corn cobs right in the mouth or the face and the nose bleeding or the lips bleeding or the cut a place on the head. That would stop it. Mm-hmm. And it's all fun and games until someone loses an eye. <laughs> We couldn't. We weren't afraid the person getting hurt. You look at why well, you know you're all right. Right. Well, let's stop the bleeding because if your mom and dad saw it, then you're all in trouble. Mm-hmm. You don't have enough sense to not to get there and try to kill each other. I will whip you. You know. Right. You got to stay under the radar. You can do whatever you want to yeah. down there, but <laughs> back then you got weapons. Uh-huh. Yeah. And uh, I had my share, and all my friends had their share. Mm-hmm. But you still look back on that time period fondly, right? That. Yeah, I love That's it. the beauty of childhood, I think. No matter what yeah. circumstances it is, it's there's something that was really cool about it back then. Yeah. Especially when it was, you, you were creative. You know, mm. Play, you got to be creative. Yeah, that's and, true. Imagination is the key to having fun. Vines. Yeah, big old grapevine. They grow up you know, that big around. Cut them and you could, um, in, in Kentucky, a lot of hills. You get a, a big hillside, you get a grapevine growing way up in a big tree. And you cut that sucker and you could swing way out. If you drop, it could have killed you. <laughs> You're 30 feet in the air out here, you know. And, and 
Every time we cut a grape vine, everybody wants to be the first person to swing on it. Well, you had to test it, though, to see if it was in the tree good. Sometimes you swing out there and all of a sudden, down it comes. Right. But that was showed your bravery. I won't be first. I'll be first. And uh, <laughs> we're just generally stupid. But then the other thing about being first is you swing out there like, wow. And, and the great vine sort of twisting around as you go. You don't, they don't just swing like a rope. Mm-hmm. Okay? Well, this, the way it's fixing a tree, it's got cork different ways. Yeah. And so then you swing out there and you start coming back in and you see you're heading straight for the tree. Okay. <laughs> big old oak tree, that big around you're hitting, you're aimed dead center for that. And then the vine turns you, now you're coming backwards into the tree. <laughs> you know, with the jump, you look down, you're still way up there, and all of a sudden, wham, you hit the tree, knocks the breath out of you, you roll down the hill, and the other buddy's coming out, you all right? You can be, you lost your breath, uh, 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 finally get your breath. Yeah, it's a good one, but we gotta swing sideways. <laughs> I mean, it's like a, 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 a roller coaster almost, you know, with the, the unknown, the feeling of danger, and it's so fun. Yeah, it's great. We got stuff like that a whole lot. It was a small car. We just live in the woods and, and love it. And then when we finally all got bicycles, you're out in the country and you ride for miles and going out old gravel roads. Back then, there were a lot of gravel roads. And uh, oh, you could find out of gravel roads, go down a big hill, and it's fine. You get to talk to them or something like and you get over in the middle where the gravel sort of piled up, mm-hmm. <laughs> and you lose it. Like, wow! <laughs> You're going so fast. But pretty soon, there's nothing worse than hitting the, the gravel road where the cars go all the time because it's packed. Oh, yeah. Like sandpaper. Flat, yeah. You know, fine little gravel. Mm-hmm. And you slide. I mean, it takes a hide off. You that big, big burn off places and bleeding. And uh, you didn't say nothing about it. You get bust at. Now, don't you have enough sense? What are we? <laughs> um, <laughs> having fun. <laughs> that's amazing. Do you feel but, like, do you ever draw on that time period for your artwork or for inspiration? Or are you usually looking yes. into new worlds for your inspiration? Uh, it's, a, it's a mixture of everything, I guess. I like, I like adventure. I like yeah. excitement all my life. And, uh, and then I like, uh, I like the stories. I like the old scary stories and then fantasy is one step from scary stories from the fantasy. Yeah. Because of the scary story, whatever is getting you is not of this earth anyway, or some demon or something, you know. Right. It's just one step in the fantasy. And um but I, I really like my paintings to give you the feeling there's a story there. Mm. And it's up to you to make up the story. Wow. Genius. And I, I feel like that's a, almost an exact phrase I've been hearing. I've heard Stephen Dinehart talk about with Giant Lands of, you know, who will you become? You get to tell your own story in this place. It's like we kind of we set it up and then you knock it down kind of thing. You get to uh, take that inspiration of the setting and tell your own stories. And I, I don't know. I think it's a really cool that it's more of a playground than like a maze. You know, it's it's, it's more wide and open. You can do a simple painting, but if you've got the timing or the time of the day, the environment set just right, using clouds, sky, woods, atmosphere, colors, and you paint a figure, you can do a single figure or two or three. They don't have to be killing a monster. They don't have to be fighting each other. But you can build a sense of something going on. Mm -hmm. And that something 
is for um, you to figure out. You can build a story. When I'm doing a painting like that, now, some of the paintings I have to do on contact paintings, and I'm, st I'm stopping doing contact paintings for a while, because I want to paint my own stuff for a while. Um, I've been so busy last year, I can't really do anything for myself. But I've done a couple. And, um, but I, I, I want, I want to, uh, give this setting to where it inspires you to come up with a story. Uh, to, to, to make you think. And when I'm painting things like that, usually the story, a story comes to me. A piece of one. I know who this person, by the time I'm finished, I know who this person is. Mm. And it's just from my own imagination work. I know I was painting a painting a couple of years ago for myself, and I was going to keep it random selling it. But, um, it was, it was a night scene in the snow. It was like he was coming up the hill. When it was the viewer, you're looking at it like he was looking over a hill. And you can see way down a, uh, you know, hills, and there's trees and woods. You can tell it's out in the, could have been winter in Ireland or something. I don't know, you know. And um, there's actually some low mountain-like things. You can see all the way to the horizon. And there's big clouds up there and over the sky. It was just like it had just gotten dark, not, not too long after dark. And there was a good snow on, but you could still see. There must have been a full moon someplace. There, moon, you could see. And these two riders, it was coming at you. And you could see by the tracks of snow that they had been walking their horses. And they looked like Celtic pipe. Fighters, and um, and what happened, and you can tell this by just a glance at the painting, is while he was riding up there, probably talking, a black dragon, a dark blue dragon, had spotted him and had come out of the dark sky. They didn't see him and swooped in right in behind him, and it was so low, it was sort of cockeyed with his wing. The one foot was almost dragging in the snow, one of his back feet. And uh, they had seen it, and they just started to run, and they were looking at each other, and one was, their mouth open, looked like he's yelling, and the title of it was split up. Because while I was painting that, it came to me, these are two brothers, and they've been fighting in some battle, some place, some war, and they're coming home. It's wintertime, and I was looking on home, and, and a dragon caught them on the way home. And they're going to be dead if they don't do something. This, by the time they stop their horses and pivot, it's already hit them, pulling them up and down. The only chance is to ride as hard as they can, as fast as they can, and what do they do? Well, they're in a clearing, but you can see the woods around, but they're in a clearing and on a hill. And so I was thinking, what would I do? And I, I just knew those, they were brothers. And by the, by the horse and the clothing, one brother was older, and he'd done a little bit better than his younger brother. He'd been out in the world more, and he'd probably got a little bit of money. He was just a bit better off. His horse looked a little better. His, the strappings and everything on his horse was better. And, um, but they were both you know, tough guys, but they weren't muscle-bound on Schwarzenegger. They were normal-looking men. And uh, But I thought if I was there, if I was an older brother, but I have a younger brother, I thought the only thing I could think of to save one of us was split up. Because they'd have to only get one. And maybe if you could get away from your horse, another guy circled back around, maybe the two of you could fight it once it's on the ground. But there could be a possibility out of this. At least one of them would live. And so, so the title split up. But as I was painting out, the whole story came to me. 
Wow. And uh, I'm hoping when somebody else sees it, they look at it enough and they can see us. But I like to do paintings like that for myself that makes you think about, even if it's a single character, like, what are they doing? And what's going on for sure? That's um, fascinating. I love that, being able to, to piece together like it's a mystery story, a mystery yeah. novel. Like, you can see what the evidence is. You can see what's about to happen. And it's kind of the inciting incident. Like, this is chapter one of the novel. Where does it go from here? Oh, that's thrilling. I've had a lot of people ask me at conventions or email me. And they tell me a certain thing they love. And they say, could I write a story about that? Could I see a story? I'm like, sure. I did the painting. You write a story? If it if it makes you think of a story, write it. Have fun, enjoy it, and, uh, and hope you get it published. You know. <laughs> yeah. Wow. But uh, but oh, cool. um, yeah, if there's something inspires you, because other artists' work inspires me too. I look. I I don't either. I'm getting old, or um, or the art is not like it used to be. Mm. <laughs> A lot of art doesn't inspire me like some of the earlier paintings did. Um, I knew back when I was working at TSR, and shortly after I quit, there was a lot of artists at that time. They would do some Dragon Magazine covers and stuff. I can't remember all the names, but they were really good artists, and our art would do that. They would tell a story. Mm -hmm. they, the, 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 the monster wasn't 20 stories tall. The dragon wasn't, wasn't as big as Empire State Building. <laughs> it was a normal size. Mm -hmm. But I think a lot of these people has never had to face something in nature. Um, it don't take a big animal to kill you. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great point. <laughs> it doesn't. Just a nice little horse can really can kill you accidentally. But I mean, I've ridden. We 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 like one ride horses back in there. And nobody around there had riding horses. You know, that was for rich people. Mm -hmm. They had work horses to pull the plow. And um, so that we'd go with these little horses. They didn't. They never get ridden hardly, but they. They were tamed. I mean, wow. they didn't want to be ridden. But you go to the farmer, and back then, the way we about lawsuits and crap. And they say, Can we ride your horse? And they said, Well, if you can catch him, you can ride him. <laughs> and so they didn't have a saddle, just a bridle. Mm -hmm. But they didn't ride him. They just hook him up to a plow or something. So so we get the bridle, and the horse be like 20 acres over there in the field. Like, God. So you walk away, and a horse sees you coming. He's eating. He's like he's ignoring you. Like, we're going to walk right up on this baby. Man, we got it. And you get about 15 feet from him. He raises his head and pivots and runs to the other side of the field. Yeah. God. So, <laughs> hey, the next 20 minutes, you're walking back over the other side of the field. After he does that three or four times, finally, he's like, I guess these idiots are determined that he'll get you. And then you get on him, and he doesn't want to be ridden. They, they don't buck much, but they'll don't want to listen. They don't want they'll be trying to turn them, and they don't want to turn. They want to do what they want to do. And so you get thrown off. You get they'll scrape you off. They'll go under a tree limb low enough to scrape you off. Oh yeah, that hurts. Scraped off a lot. <laughs> they go, you know, beside a building like a barn. But you have to just pull your whole. You just had to take your leg and everything up, and just barely on the thing, or he'll just scrub you off. <laughs> and some of them try to bite you. Uh, ponies were bad at biting. God, I mean, mm -hmm. they bite hard. But I was on horse a lot. I never got kicked on a straight kick. I got some some um, deflected kicks. You know, mm -hmm. like something that bounced off and got me. He was kicking at me, but he didn't get me good. And that was enough. It really hurt. 
But you get kicked straight on by a horse, it can do some damage. Oh, yeah. Especially if it hits you in the head, that's... Uh, oh, yeah. That's real bad. <laughs> yeah. And um, that's what they used to say about people that were a little lost. Right. Like, ah, well, he got kicked in the head by a horse when he was a kid. <laughs> it's also crazy the amount of risk that, that that kind of childhood... I grew up in a similar fashion, honestly. There is so much risk. There are so many times you could have fallen on your head. But the thing it was... Your dads and your grandpa and your friends' dads, they all did the same thing. I was part of growing up. Mm-hmm. But that's me. I'm a dying age. Next <laughs> up. I remember uh, when I was in the Army, I missed some other soldiers that lived on post and had a kid. This is in the 70s, and I, and I, I remember telling when I, I talked about this for years because it got worse. Uh, my term was baby Jesus. And my mm-hmm. wife said, what are you talking about? I said, Everybody's raising baby Jesuses. I said, See, what do you mean? I said, their child is so precious. Can never be touched by <laughs> anyone. I'm not even going to touch it. I mean, in, in, in anger or, or correct it. It gets to do whatever it wants to do. And it did. And all these children grew up. They don't have a work ethic. They don't, they not the parents. Um, they don't go out and get a job. Um, I've sort of followed these generations, you know, the ones that were baby Jesus's. <laughs> if, if you even said something to a child in public, then the parents are going to sue you. Yeah. Yeah. The child go up and kick you in the shin for no reason, spit on you, but, and I've seen that basically happen. And the parents are going to say, no, no, don't do that. Come on. Man, I, I'm really thankful for the discipline I grew up with because it's like, I feel like if I didn't have that, Life yeah. would be so much more frustrating, and I wouldn't have accomplished many of my goals because I would have well, just uh, sat around exactly. doing nothing. It's, it's, that's what's happening. My son right now, he's a supervisor at Ford Motor Company. I, uh, he's uh, somebody around three and four lines, you know, building four trucks. And he's got to talk to all the employees on the line, keep them in line, keep them working. He said, well, the sad part about it is this generation coming now in the 20s, even 30 and down, but mainly in the 20s, he said, they're still living off of mom and dad. They don't hold a job. And they will not work. Uh, to fill one spot on the line, they'll have to hire. Uh, they have 200 applicants, let's say. It's down to about, they start going through them, putting one on the line, and they quit. Some of them last 30 minutes. Some of them last an hour. Some last a day. Some last a week. Some last a month. If they make it a month, usually they're going to stay. But you go through, he said, you go through 200 to get kids. And they pay $38 now. Wow. And you don't have to have an education to go in there. And if they hire you, you can make 30. But you've got to work. Mm-hmm. It's actual. Mm-hmm. They can't do it. And uh, and so they're still living off mom and dad. Yeah, that, w- that would not be a very enjoyable life, I don't think. You'd, you'd feel frustrated with, with so many parts of your life. It is. Whereas if you grow up, uh, let's say the school hard knocks, and, and you know, you didn't have anything given to you. And you know from early age, if there's anything in this world I want, I'm going to get it myself. I'm going to have to work for it. And um, I realized that a long time ago. That I want a lot of things, but I'm not going to give anything unless I do it. Nobody's going to give it to me. And um, and back then, if you did have to ask your mom and dad for something, if you're grown or if you're married, that was the most humiliating thing for a while, embarrassing thing. You didn't do that. You would almost starve to death before you would ask your parents 
to help because of if he was raised right, he, he wouldn't do that. Now, we all understand hard times. Things will happen sometimes. Mm-hmm. Or, and uh, if, if one of our kids got in bad shape through something that out of their control, yeah, I would help them out. But if they just been stupid and blow their money in, too bad. You did it. <laughs> yeah. Well, and if that's the expectation is they assume you're going to bail them out every time, then not. they're not they winning don't. anything. <laughs> that's great. Only in a situation that's out of their control. Mm-hmm. You know, um, like if they had a car wreck and they lost the job, right? Wow, they will heal and get better. Um, but I wouldn't help them out. I am their father, and I will be their father day to die. I'm just saying they want to do this or that, like back yourself. You know, nobody bought me a new set of furniture, a new car, or anything. You get that. Mm-hmm. If you want a car from me, if I get ready to buy another one, I'll give you this old one. Then. <laughs> That's all you're gonna get. You know, I think, you know, they say it's either nature or nurture. And I think for, for some of those people whose parents didn't nurture them to be, you know, really disciplined or self-disciplined or go get what they want, I feel like there is a way for us to success for them. And that's to find a passion, you know, something like painting, where it's like, it's going to take a lot of work. You're going to fail a lot, run into a lot of obstacles, but eventually you'll learn what hard work is and what the benefits of that are. And you can kind of pull yourself up through that, that passion and uh, kind of teach yourself a lot of helpful skills, even if your parents didn't quite get that into you. I'm curious what the art direction was like for, for when you worked at TSR. Those early days. They didn't give you a lot of instructions. They would, uh, they, they, we didn't really have an art director that would tell you, this is what you need to paint. I think this, no, it'd be like, well, here's your assignment. There's a cover for forgotten rims. And so you go talk to the author or something. Well, what's this about? You know, give me an idea. And, um, and they'd tell you a little bit and, uh, and, and you go out there and you do a drawing, whatever you want to do. And, uh, and if they leave you alone, really, if they leave you alone and you get, you enjoy it, you'll do a lot better piece of artwork. Mm-hmm. Okay, but when somebody is not artistic at all, tells you how they want it, you're thinking, that really sucks. Right. Or I've seen that a million times. That's just a trope. You're just pulling from. Yeah. Yep. Or I wouldn't paint that in a million years. <laughs> and I bet that you got to do it. Mm-hmm. So you do a lot of sucky paintings because you have to to get paid. But TSR, they didn't. Thank God. And they would. I think they learned if you give the artist freedom. He'll do a better painting for you. Right. If you forced him to paint something he hates to paint, he just want to get it done. I mean, he'll do it good enough, but his heart's not in it. It's like, oh, God. Yeah, you got to trust the artist anyway. that they're going to. Trust him. You, you give me some freedom and let me have a good input to it. Right. You'll get a better painting. And but and I know if the, you tell me the format, you tell me what it's about. I understand all that. I, I, and uh, I was lucky when I was uh, going through college stuff, most of my summer job stuff, I ended up getting hard on big printing places. So I understood about offset printing by the time I was uh, in the Army. And then I, my, when I got out of the Army, I went to work at Fort Knox Civil Service. So I wasn't in the military. I got out, but it was Civil Service as an illustrator. And they were redoing all the Army manuals, how to fight manuals, a lot of illustrations and stuff and tanks and helicopters, and um, I was doing those. 
And, um, but, uh, I forgot what I was going to say. There's something about, I was talking about enjoying what you do. That, that place where I drew stuff at Fort Knox, it was also a printing place. So you can see our drawing go from your drawing to being photographed to the plates made to print it cool. and to see a finished product. So you understand the whole steps. And and, and so by the time I went to work at TSR, I knew more about printing than the, than the, we were dealing with printed products, but I knew how they were printed and I understood. I've stayed up on it my whole life, but I was just lucky to end up working places about that and understood the process, you know, the black and white process, half tones, and, 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 but now it's changed. They can print about anything with not much trouble, but used to it was, you had to watch what the kind of art you were doing according to how it was going to be printed. And, uh, so you take a lot of consideration. The only thing uh, Illustrator asked for is, if I understand what you want and the size and, and I've read your book or whatever, then let me try to do, have some faith in me, that's all. And if you've been doing it for years, they should have a little bit of faith in you, you know. But Yeah, that's a good point. And it's almost kind of like, like your parents when you're a kid going out and playing in the field or whatever. It's, I don't want to have to hear about you. Go do your thing. You know what I mean? I trust you that you're going to do the right thing. If you don't, you might get in trouble, but I'm not going to hold your hand and micromanage you. That's a better way to do it, I think. Like, That's just how all my friends in the country there, and someone with cousins, someone cousins, they're just neighbors, kids, but there's a bunch of the same age, old group of us, boys and girls. They just let you play. I mean, they didn't go out there and manage it. Unless they saw you shooting, aiming a BB gun at somebody, then they go out there and warp you with it or something. You didn't do that. That's stupid. You never point any kind of a gun at a person. And um, but other than that, they let you wrestle, play, and then you get to wrestle and get mad, and end up trying to hurt the other one. And they just let you do it, unless they saw that you. Was, but we knew we couldn't seriously hurt the other one. He was mad. You, you, you said it was still. This was fun, and so sometimes you just have to quit. Both of you, you knew you was mad and you better quit. Because if you did get mad and did hurt the other one, then your parents would get involved. Not like suing each other. You'd both get a weapon. Mad and fight. It's all right to wrestle and fight around, but you don't get mad and start fighting your friends, your cousins. You don't do that. Or make you apologize and stuff. Um, but they give you the freedom. They give you the freedom to hang yourself. And uh, so it's up to you to right. not hang yourself. Yeah, you learn to take life more seriously I mean, if you're... Getting in trouble and getting oh, yeah. hurt, you know. It's oh, yeah, I have been in situations where I would have died mm -hmm. many times, and and there was no one to help me, and uh, I would I've been stuck on the side of cliffs before. We'd climb cliffs with no ropes, <laughs> no anything. Just I think I can Holy climb cow. that. And you get about halfway up, you're stuck on the side of a cliff, and we didn't know anything about cliffs. <laughs> I mean, really take me just you're a kid up there like a like a fly on the wall, like. God, I can't go down. I can't go up. And I'm holding on. You're getting tired, and you get to shaking, and you're shaking your arm, shaking. Like, I'm gonna fall and die. And you cry a while, and then finally, you're like, well, I'm gonna have to get myself down. <laughs> yeah, the helicopter's not coming. <laughs> yeah, your parents don't have a clue where you're at. They know you'll be home at supper time. Okay, that's all. You better be home at supper time. Because mom cooked that meal, mm -hmm. you're going to be here to eat it. 
And, uh, so, so you sit there after you cried a while and thought you did, and you start figuring out a way. And luckily, I always either finish my way up or manage to climb yep. back down. But, uh, but you got yourself in a situation like that a lot. And but it taught you about life. Look before you leap. All these old things. It's like, yeah. Well, and those are things you can hear someone tell you that all day. You're not going to listen to that. You're not going to understand it until you. A good example of looking before you leap. I had an older cousin. He's two years older than me. And he was the bravest. He was crazy brave. I think he was always trying to impress his dad. Hmm. His dad and my dad grew up together. And they were crazy. I mean, as far as climbing trees, cliffs, they done everything and risked their lives. And uh, back then, you know, if you went there and killed yourself, it's just, well, you lost a kid, mm-hmm. <laughs> lost one, done something stupid. And, uh, and so, uh, so he always wanted to top what his dad had told him about. And so we'd be out doing things. And I know we was on top of a big cliff one time and you come to it and it was like, it was a hundred foot drop. And uh, we used to think about we we'd climbed up it, and we you'd have to walk a mile to get back down, or you have to climb back down. You wouldn't know where you want to climb back down. It was like not made it up. I said, I'm thinking, oh, we got to walk three miles to pick, come around and get back and to where you can get back to where you're supposed to be. And he got to look and he said, "There's some big trees going up." He said, "No, some of the trees are about maybe 15 foot taller than the cliff." You know, you can see that some place you'd look where clip come down a little bit. He said, I think if we run real hard, we can jump and grab onto a tree and then go down the tree. I said, that's crazy. That's, that's, <laughs> we're going to jump like 10 to 15 feet to hit the tree. If you miss it, <laughs> you're dead. He said, we can do it. And I'm like, God. And I was always like, if he can do it, I can do it. And so it took him about 10 minutes to get the courage up. And he, like I said, he was bigger than me and older. And he ran. He could run fast. He ran like a, He went off that cliff. The arms and legs sprout. And he hits that cliff, just spread eagle. I mean, hits that tree. And he latches onto it, right? Wow. And I'm like, holy cow. And he said, ah, see, I made some. Let me get out of your way. Let me go down the tree a little bit. And then it's your turn. <laughs> Dear God. So you're talking about one little boy running. I mean, I backed up a little bit farther than he did. I, I ran so far, I was almost out of breath by the time I got to the edge of the cliff. And I went off out the tank, kicking like, ah. And I hit. And uh, of course, you spread equal and you hit and you mash everything you got on it. And I was like, oh, God. You just wrap around the tree like a wet wash rag. You just wrap around it. And he he, he was double He said, So it hurts on that impact, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. Didn't yeah. warn you about that one. He didn't say nothing. <laughs> but, but we went down the tree in the bad part. You get down the tree and the last limb is probably about 10 feet from the ground or more. And it's like, oh, God. So you got to hang. Yep. <laughs> get your courage up and drop. But whoa, you know, splat. Man. Well, I made it. You know, I'm alive. Wow. That's amazing. That's really cool. Something that I think is cool about uh, role-playing games, especially when they're really immersive, is that you get to kind of live those kinds of experiences, you know? Especially, I think something about a potential future for Giant Lands is a park you can go to 
which I think is just fascinating. It's like being able to walk into one of your paintings almost, or kind of walk back into one of these memories. Some adventure, some wild adventure you're going yeah. on, and you get to be part of it. Yeah, the first time I played D and D, I was still working in Fort Knox, and we had hired a new guy. Yeah. To play this new game. I heard about it, but I didn't know what a role playing game was. And he finally talked us into playing a game. I said, well, let's play it this lunchtime. He said, you can't play it just one lunchtime. He said, we got to start rolling up characters. Well, what's that, you know? So about the next few days, we rolled up characters <clears throat> at lunchtime. We didn't know what we was doing. So finally, <laughs> we all got a sheet of paper. We sat at the table for another lunch period. We're going to actually play. And uh, I I was a dwarf fighter. I always liked to be a dwarf. I was a little guy, short, short Makes guy. Makes sense. <laughs> and I, yeah. I'd be a fighter. And so I'm a dwarf fighter. And he, so he gets to sitting. He said, you're all this night. And you're sitting on a campfire beside a big river and a big forest behind you. Okay. He said, all right, now, what are y'all going to do? Well, the wizard, uh, the guy uh, who was the wizard, he, he said, ah, I need to read my spells, right? He said, yes, yes that's good. And, okay, I'm reading my spells. And, um, and I was sitting there, he's asking people and, one, one of them said, well, I'm going to eat me something. You know? <laughs> <laughs> it's an exciting adventure so far. He comes around to me. He said, well, what are you going to do? I said, isn't that guy there a thief? He said, yeah. I said, well, I'm going to kill him. <laughs> and he said, what do you mean you're going to kill him? I said, I'm going to kill him. He's a thief. So I said, give me some guys. I started rolling. And the thief said, I'm going to kill him back. You know. <laughs> so, so we started fighting the wizard said, I'm going to get a spell to stop them or freeze them or something, you know. And and the guy in the game was screaming, you can't fight. You're on the same team. You're on the same team. And finally, he got through to us. I was already, ah, that's a good role. It was a high number. I knew I had good. So he finally explained to us that we were all working together. Like, oh, you didn't explain that. I thought I was going to have to wipe out the party and take what they had. I didn't know what I was supposed to do. Oh, my God. I didn't want to be running around with a thief, you know. <laughs> It makes sense. Yeah, and your first exposure to something like Dungeons and Dragons can be so different than what's in your head. You start playing, you're like, oh, okay, now I get it eventually. It was fun. I never played a game like I said. After we, we played a while, but our lunches started running long, and our boss made us quit playing it. And, and so, but you had to bug. It's like, oh, my God. I said, this is the neatest game I've ever played in my life. And I love games. Back then, I love games. I said, this is it. This is this is the king of all games. Because Use your imagination. Right. And you and can do anything. Together. You're not trying to beat this guy. Be Every game you play, you get, you're beating an opponent. opponent. And like, that's how I thought it was. Okay, I'll kill a thief first. He, I don't think he's that tough. He's a thief. You know, <laughs> I'm not going to tackle a fighter yet. <laughs> and so, and then when I thought we worked together, I thought, that is fantastic. We actually is a team. And then when I went to work at TSR, we started playing. Some of them was playing for the first time. But Keith Parkinson, when he got there, he was younger, but he's been playing. He was a DM. And uh, he got on it early when it came out, you know. And, and so he got us all in a game, which ran for about two years, I guess. And we loved it. I mean, our lunch hours go from an hour to two. And sometimes somebody comes in and says, <clears throat> isn't it about time you get back to work so we so that's how we stay after work and make up for the. Oh, that's great. Well, every game you play is more research for for your you know your worlds for your paintings and. And that's why I think that our paintings keyed in on the players. We 
played. Right. We just freelancer do some work sometimes, and he didn't get it. Just didn't get it. Um, you have to maybe tell him, no, we need this or that. Or do you play the game? No. Well, I have to explain what it's about. Mm-hmm. But if you're playing the game and you know you understand it, and uh, and what I pushed in there, and Keith Parkson bought into it, drops the bat because he understood he he played D and D. But I said uh, I want us to. You worked the whole scene at that time. What was very popular on paperback books and stuff was a figure in fog. Not much background, just a hint of a background and a figure, just one mm-hmm. a girl or a big guy. These are paperback or a guy will in a spaceship behind him or something, you know. That was it. Right. I said, in D&D, it's like I'd really was been watching Western art at that time, uh, finding any, anything I could find, a magazine or something or a book that had Western art, the, the Western art that was being done then in, in the in the 70s and 80s. And um, there's some really good Western art. That whole big Western art movement was just really forming. And now these Western artists get $500,000 for a big painting, you know, they've collected. But they're beautiful. It's big landscapes with, with figures with people in it or, or, or guys herding a stampede of cattle or Indians fighting and shooting the action and everything. I said, I told Keith, he was new in there, and Clyde and Jeff were painting more than figures in fog. And I was trying to work the whole scene. It was like D&D. I told Keith, I said, let's work the whole scene. I said, in D&D, the weather matters, the terrain matters, the time of day matters, everything. It's reality. Let's put our people in reality, in real settings. He said, yeah, uh, that's how D&D is. And so Keith naturally went to that direction. And I was already doing that kind of work because I'd been inspired through the 70s by the Western artists as well. And um, and so Clyde, Clyde was a big figure in fog. He was a and they really liked what I was doing with working the whole scene. And I kept telling them, work the whole scene. And then once we started playing D&D, everybody, because uh, Jeff had never played, Clyde had never played. And um, and uh, Diesel, our mapper, Dave LaForce, he, uh, he'd been there since day one, just about. He was, I think he started working at TSR when he was like 16. <laughs> Before he got to high school, I think he was working there in the summer. And he, then he went to work there, and he was a mapper, and, and he'd played his whole life, so he was really great playing with it. And um, so through the game, we, we saw how how it relates, how we can relate to the player, uh, you know, the, the people who want to buy the packaging. I think that really helped. Uh, it helped yeah. sell the product, yeah. Uh, and I think the, the kind of people who can really get into Dungeons & Dragons already have that kind of imagination where they have – whatever it is, that X factor where they can go to a place of imagination and, and picture what the weather is like and what it feels like under your, your shoes and your boots and everything. And I think some people don't quite get it. You know, you tell them about Dungeons and Dragons and they just don't have that level of imagination or that artistic bone or whatever. Right. But, yeah, I don't know. I, I've got a this weird kind of passion or ambition or whatever of trying to make, because the other podcast I do is we we brainstorm theme parks, which is basically a way of kind of tricking everyone to getting into that imaginative mind space. It it obviously works well for some people and not as well for other people. If they've got that kind of imaginative brain already, they're going to have an easier time with it. But I don't know. I just, I like the idea of trying to welcome in more people who maybe don't already have that natural skill to make that leap. 
Um, whereas something like Dungeons and Dragons, it's it's purely in your head, and someone's going to get a lot more enjoyment out of that if they have the right kind of creative mind and can picture things. So yeah, but something like your your artwork can really help with something like that. Give an idea of what your scene might be like. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I think the covers really draw people in because of that, because they're like, this I understand. Maybe if it's a two full pages of just text, they might get lost again, but then they put the book away and they look at the cover and they're like, I got to come back to this because that cover is so cool and so evocative and so helpful for me. It's such a stepping stone into the world. No, you're right about all that. Uh, I've often thought when we was playing not a big game at TSR, I thought, I wish, like all of us was there sitting at the table. We was all in the same place at the same moment of time in the game to say we're in a, a tore down ruins of a castle. We've got a campfire going. We hear noises on the side and see some glowing eyes in the dark. Well, in my mind, I see the scene mm -hmm. my way. In Jeff's mind, he sees the scene his way. In Keith's mind, he sees the scene his way. Each person, even though we're all there and we're experiencing it together, but all of our mental pictures are different. I would like to see, if you take a snapshot and lay them all out, how we're all and compare. And whose picture is better? I mean, maybe his picture scares the crap out of me. Maybe Clyde's is just, uh, but I would like to just to see how each person envisions that scene in their, their mind. More visualization would be so cool if we had that technology to project our imaginations and uh, almost edit together a movie or something. If you're working with a bunch of creative people, a lot of them can visualize. Different, each, each, each person is seen, but you're still all there in the same place. And uh, and because and you're working together and you do fight and, and win. And and uh, and you are, although you just got a, maybe a, got a marching order of ventures and there, that's it. Yeah. And uh, uh, we never did have, a, somebody be drawing a map. Mm-hmm. I was mapping for us, and the rest we just had a mentor on the table and kept moving our marching order around. Um, that was enough because we was all creative. We could all see it in our heads, you know. And um, and 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 Keith was a DM and being an artist too, he could describe the scene well. And and I, that's what get me is like he's described the scene. Now there's four other illustrators here or whatever. This inner mind, they're creating that scene. I'd like to see what their scene is, you know. But I wish you could. That'd be so fun. And you've gotten to play with some of the, you know, best role players ever. And I just, I, there's so many of those cool moments that are lost to history too, where you might've got some inspiration from it, but you don't remember exactly what happened in that play session. Whereas today with, with newer technology, when people do actual play videos or podcasts where you hear everyone playing a game together and you hear what each person's reaction is and they're all kind of helping to describe the scene and all that's recorded where people all over the world throughout the future can listen to it and get inspiration and it feels like they're sitting there which is so cool i just it'd be so amazing to do if we had audio from those play sessions you know like what was it like at tsr um back in the day or or even just all the amazing people uh that have played games in their own basements and in living rooms yeah. since the invention of, of role-playing games. Uh, there's so much cool stuff that happened that uh, that's kind of lost to history. But it's like, um, I don't know, uh, like we started out in that game and that's the longest game I've ever played in the biggest game. Hmm. And uh, 
we all started out as first level characters and Keith was a good DM. We earned our way up. And, uh, and I think by the time it ended, uh, because they started firing people, <laughs> he said, we lost one of our mappers and it wasn't Diesel, but it's another mapper, Steve Sullivan, and then we lost this and that. But, um, but when we was playing, it was just with, with that many creative people, uh, you could really visualize, like you're saying, just you're in the game, you're there. And we earned all of our levels the hard way, and we fought all the way through. And, uh, and Keith was a great DM. He would set things in front of you. Or like, we were like third level characters. We just went to town and retrained and just went up to third level. And, and I'd bought me a, a war horse. And a pseudo armor, man. I was going to go out and fight anything now. We had, we'd spent all our money. And we're going across this plain, grassy plain. And uh, I said, well, what do we see? Just this, this long, grassy plain, way in the distance of some hills. And uh, we didn't know where it was going. We just walked. And, uh, and he said, but you do notice a shadow coming across the ground pretty fast, across the weeds of the grassland. And I said, well, we all look up. You know, so we saw a shadow moving across. And what do we see? It's a dragon. What kind? It's a red dragon. And we all watch it. It goes over, he said, about, you know, 300 yards away. It's a good distance. And lands on a big rock. What's it doing? It looks like it's resting, you know. So we have a big debate among us real quick. Let's kill it. <laughs> so we're going to go kill this dragon. We'd never seen one in the game yet. You know, he'd never introduced something like that. And he said, well, why do you want to kill it? It's not bothering you on this. It's a dragon. It's got to be worth something. <laughs> I said, I bet the scales are worth money. So, uh, so we plan our, make our plan of attack, and we, and we attack the dragon. And he, he about kills all of us very quickly. And I think we was all went unconscious. Unconscious. And somebody woke up first and started doctoring us. And we finally, we had lost all our armor. Mine got burnt up, singed or whatever, everything. We were back to just ragtag, burnt to crisp people almost. And somebody, was, alive. <laughs> somebody was unconscious for like two days, you know. <laughs> and uh, so we, we go back, we start all over again. You know, we kind of, and uh, next time we saw a dragon, we ran and hid. <laughs> so you're not ready to fight a dragon until you get to a higher level. And back then, I know, you know, people get to 120th level. Back then, if you lived, if your character hadn't died twice to get to a fifth or sixth level, you wouldn't play. You'd have a good DM, right? Because <laughs> everything was tough, and and he was so good, he would just put things out there. He'd just tell you what's there. He wouldn't tell you if it was good, bad. What you know? Well, what is that? I don't know. Well, what does it look like? He'd give a brief description. We get to mess around. Curiosity, and um, and he would leave it totally up to us to get hurt, <laughs> or, yeah, or get wow. It was something that we didn't know what it was. It'd just be there, and um, something out of place. Well, then somebody's trying to hide something. There's something mm -hmm. like that, you know. And sometimes oh. it was half the time you got hurt. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, and and then you have the desire to 
jump for that tree, you know, kind of do these crazy things that maybe you shouldn't have done, but you're like, Hey, that's there. Maybe I'll go mess with that. <laughs> that's so fun. When yeah, in real life, I've had to do that. stuff. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It does kind of echo some of that, that childhood adventure that you got to go through. And I'm sure that's something that draws you to adventure stories and draws us all to adventure stories. Too. Oh, but Greg, that reminds me, we always going across farmland or people's farms when he's out roaming around. Mm-hmm. And you got to know everybody's cattle, cows. And you got to know the bull. Some bulls were very passive bulls. They didn't give a crap because mm-hmm. they knew you weren't a cow and they wasn't going to bother you. But some bulls, they didn't even like the smell of you, didn't like you in their field, and they would try to kill you. Okay, so we would, we would, we knew when we was crossing the fence which farm and which bull was going to be around. You had to look, see if he's down the <laughs> place or grazing on the side of the hill. He'd look. He'd get maybe halfway across the field and you hear something more. You look around, and there he's standing. And he's back to, he's starting to paw the ground. Oh my God. And you're looking for trees. You know, where's yeah. the closest trees? And you run like the devil, and here he comes. And split up. Time, yeah, you do. You split <laughs> up. That's first thing I go. And, and sometimes you get the one, the, you win the lottery, and the bull picks you, you know. Wow. And I've been many times where I've uh, got a tree between me and a bull, and the tree maybe yeah, <laughs> only that big around. And I'm, I'm just trying to. Stay skinny behind it. Old bull's trying to come around. You're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. You go back the other way. And you do it. To finally, he'll back up and get tired and back up and look at you. And maybe one of those behind a bigger tree or got a fence, they start yelling at him, get his attention and getting away from him. But lots of times you think, man, if he gets a hold of me, I'm a dead man. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, you learn and, and, it, and, and it makes you braver. Uh-huh. And, and like I said, riding those old horses without a saddle in there. And at night, we'd ride them sometimes at night. And they get to running on you, and they couldn't see anything. And they'd run into stuff. I've had them fall with me. And you're like, oh, my God. And some big draft horses, big old giant horses. Wow. And they fall with you. If they fall on you, they kill you. Mm-hmm. So you try to, when it goes down, if you got, if it goes down normal, you got time to try to bail off, you know. Yeah. But if it goes down fast, it's you're down. You know, it's just whatever happens you hope nothing happens but uh Jeez. But it, it, it was all fun it was excitement you know pleasure and you adventure fun. every day too you don't know what's going to be chasing you what you're going to be sweating and and you know crying from tonight but it's going to be something fun my senior year almost i saw some people that had been seniors like two years when I was a sophomore, they got out. Um, mm-hmm. Working at McDonald's, I'm like, well, I'm going to college all this time, and I, I'm going to work at McDonald's? Oh, crap. I just thought about quitting, because I was going to get drafted. Just get it over with. Go to Vietnam. <laughs> and so, so uh, my, my wife, she was my wife, and my, my wife, future wife, she said, I was broke, too. So she paid the rest of that semester off and made me stay in school. And I was depressed. I thought, man, I didn't give up. And I started up sending my stuff off. I got published in Heavy Metal Magazine. I got published in National Lampoon back when it was a really cool magazine. And I started seeing it work. Slowly. Just keep pushing, keep pushing. But I never dreamed that I would be where I'm at today. 
it's amazing a, a living a living legend you know your your works from far in your past are still beloved things i don't even understand but you're still producing new stuff today like it's it's amazing i look at some of those old paintings and some of them were pretty good i was painting it on over some of them <laughs> but i was i was in prime time as far as exciting and energy and and um uh, just in the groove 24-7, you know. But uh, the guy that commissioned me do, it's the four women of Dragonlance. So it's mm. the four main characters in just the first three novels. And uh, I was, when I was doing my drawing, I was getting online to look up reference stuff in my circumstances. You're so stupid. What? She said, you were the first one to paint those three women on the first three book covers. You designed them. Uh, oh, I never thought about that. <laughs> You're right. If I want to make some little changes here and there, I can't. I designed them to begin with. Right. I, I didn't make any changes. <laughs> I just picked out a different place where I paint them and use those costumes. But I want more realistic. Now, I like to paint where they look more like women. I mean, there's not old women, but 25 or 30. I think I'm older now, and I want to do something with the girls are still pretty. You would date them. <laughs> Same time, I want to build in respect. The girl can be as tough as you are. Just think about that. And I always, when I was painting back when uh, I was working with TSR, one thing I got from all the women, all the girls, I like her girls because they're strong. They're not holding on to a guy's leg or hanging behind him. They're there with a sword, with a shield. But I knew old country girls that I would, you couldn't pay me enough to fight them because they had big brothers they fought and she'd right. hold on with them. So I knew two or three like that. If you couldn't pay $10,000, I wouldn't have fought them. And my wife, she was from a large family and big Catholic family, worked hard, and she was tough. She was beautiful. Um, young girl, young lady, and uh, but she was tough. And I remember it wasn't about a third date, and uh, I was broke. She'd paid for the car we was driving in. I didn't have any money. I was going to college, and um, and she was taking her money, and she was, I, I, in my mind, she was wasting. She was buying clothes and buying bought a stereo for her mom and dad, a big cabinet job, and I'm like, God, I can't afford cigarettes, you know, and um. Uh, so I was giving her a lecture on how to spend her money. I had no business doing that, but I was pulling one of my dad things. I'd turn down the seat. He's sitting in the middle, and I'd, I'd turn down and my hand on the steering wheel, my elbow. I started giving her this talk about how she <laughs> spend her money. And she, she said I didn't say a word. And finally, I, she looked mad. So I finally shut up. And I just turned back and I said, well, it's your money. Do what you want to. And she looked at me, just turned, looking at me. She said, you know Joey Fowler? as a guy. I said, yeah, I know him. And Joey Fowler was a farm boy, bigger than me. And she said, I whipped Joey Fowler last week. You whipped him? She said, yeah. So I, 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 I attacked him and hit him in the head, knocked him down. And he, and they broke it up and he won't, he's not messing with me anymore. And I said, uh, and is this a threat? She's, she's sure it is. <laughs> All right, no more lectures. <laughs> and uh, she said, she said, she said, 
excuse me, my brother is bigger than you, and I wasn't afraid of him. <laughs> and he said, and I knew you wouldn't even fight me like my brother would fight me, and I can whip my brother. And I'm like, well, you're right, you're right, you're right. So I married a strong woman. So as I patrolled, I always liked a strong woman. I didn't want to be a sissy woman. But like, oh, wait for me. I can't, I can't cross the stream, you know. I, oh, there's too many briars or bushes or things. I can't carry me or do something. We got to go another way. Like, I didn't like those kind of women, those girls. Girls I grew up with is, if you was wading through a thorn thicket, they'd be right behind you. You know, they're tough. And I like that toughness. I thought, I need a tough woman in line, too. And you guys have been together, what, almost 50 years now, right? It's been a long time. <laughs> I've loved it. Pretty amazing. <laughs> That's quite a story. But, uh, yeah, so f- for the audience, they should definitely take a look at LarryElmore.com. Um, do you have any, I know it's COVID right now, it's hard to say, you know, I'm going to be at this convention, but do you plan on getting back into conventions the next couple of years? I mean, for Dragon Con and Gen Con, sure, if they have it, I'll be there. And uh, I plan on going to Gary Con if they have it this year. If it's not virtual, I think it's going to be virtual. Thanks for all the stories, Larry. I really appreciate it. Together, I hope we can find new places within the imagination where we can grow and expand our understanding of what it means to be human.